You're listening to Confronting Christianity, a podcast of Training the Church. Well, we have the Spirit of God present in Genesis 1. We have a God who's speaking, and through the speaking of His Word, He's creating. So from the very beginning of the text of the story and the very beginning of everything, creation of the world, this God is plural. In the Son is life because the Father's been giving the Son life for all eternity. How do you get life? You get the Son. <laughs> like our eternal life is because we're in the Son so that we receive the begettingness from the Father. We receive the eternal life that the Father has been giving the Son forever. It is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit giving wrath and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit acting in love. There's no angry dad in the gospel. My name is Rebecca McLaughlin. You're listening to the Confronting Christianity podcast. And I'm delighted today to have with me another friend, um, Christy Thornton. Uh, Christy is an assistant professor of Christian thought and associate director of PhD studies and director of THM studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's many hats to wear. Um, She holds a BS in English education from the University of Georgia, a master's in intercultural studies from Southeastern and a PhD in theological studies and systematic theology from Southeastern. So sort of Southeastern for for quite a while, Christy, right? It's true. Christy's passion is to help the church mature as Christians grow in clarity of the gospel and the ability to effectively communicate it to one another and to the world. She served with the International Mission Board in North Africa. She's currently a covenant member at the Summit Church, and she has contributed to many um, outlets, including the Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, and others. And I'm delighted to be chatting with you, Christy. I'm excited to be here with you too, Rebecca. Christy, I first met you through our mutual friend, uh, Rachel Gilson, who um, comes and imposes herself upon you when she, <laughs> she visits Southeastern uh, for Never her PhD. Yeah, for her PhD stuff. And when a few months ago, I was chatting with Rachel and I was thinking about questions that I wanted to explore in, in this season of, of confronting Christianity And in particular, I was actually thinking about them in light of a relationship I have with a a dear friend who was raised Jewish, was very much sort of a a committed observant um, and sort of deeply involved uh, Jew uh, as a as a child, as a as a teenager, and then went off to university. Prior to that, actually became somewhat disillusioned with what she'd learned um, through a number of experiences, and is now kind of at a point where she's she's seriously exploring Christianity has a lot of questions about a number of things, in not least about the Trinity. Of course. And I thought it'd be really fun in our time together today, rather than me asking you my questions about the Trinity or sort of a, an imaginary um, other person's questions about the Trinity, that instead I'm, I'm going to ask you questions given to me by this friend specifically uh, to ask you on, online, as it were. Um, and I appreciate her being willing to do that. I think many of us, even if we were raised in, in a Christian context or if we've been a Christian for some time, we'll find that we only have the, the most sort of rudimentary, basic kind of understanding of, of the Trinity. So I'm sure all of us, regardless yeah. of how long we've been Christians, um, are going to learn something here. Yeah. Uh, but if it's all right with you, I'm just going to kind of launch in. <laughs> Let's do it. Let me make one comment on what you just said. And this Please. may set up some of the discussion from answering the questions too. So I, I think there is some truth to the fact that we, uh, many of us who were raised in Christian circles were not discipled in a way that asked us to consider the fact that our God is triune. 
right? It, mm-hmm. it just wasn't kind of built into our way of thinking for many of us. Some of it depends on which church tradition you come from, how good, how how distant or near it is. But at the same time, though, the gospel that we preach is essentially triune. And so we have the framework built into us already because we've confessed this gospel. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we behold this God. So in one sense, we like don't know it. On the other sense, we actually know it really well. We just don't realize that it's there. Right. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we'll we'll get a better sense of that as we go on. And just for those who are new, completely new to this conversation, when you say triune, that's kind of oh, like yeah. the adjective describing yeah, 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 yeah. the, the Trinity-ness of the Lord, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, the triunity, Trinity, like that word comes from the mix between the word tri, which is uh, three, and then unity one. But in particular, I almost, at points I prefer not to even to use that term, but to just say that our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and use his holy name. His holy mm. name is a Trinity. His holy name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Trinity is oh. a word that we use to describe that. Okay, okay. We're, we're, we're getting there. Uh, I'm going to launch in with, uh, with, with my friend's first question, uh, which is, has God always been a trinity? And, and she comments, I think the Christian answer to this is probably yes. But given that other aspects of God's character seem to change between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I wondered if this part of God's character changes as well. Uh, what a fantastic question. And the answer is like unequivocally yes. Uh, of course, God has always been triune. But so if, if she were here... I would have some clarifying questions. So maybe I'll ask you and maybe you can help me figure out what there, we can do this several different ways. Maybe you can help me understand what's in the background. So when she says other aspects of God's identity changes between the old and the new, do you have any idea kind of what she's thinking when she says that? Or do you want me to make up what she could be? Does that make sense? I think, yeah, I, I think a lot of people, and actually I've heard this often from from Christians as well. A lot of people have have the idea that the God revealed in the Old Testament is is big on law and on judgment and on you know, the the sort of caricature, I guess, of the the angry God of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and that in the New Testament through Jesus we see we suddenly see all this sort of forgiveness and this this grace and this mercy and this this love. Mm-hmm. In fact, my my friend has commented that she feels like the God she has read about in the New Testament and heard us talking about seems a lot more loving than the God mm. that she was raised with only in the Hebrew scriptures. So so I'm going to speculate that that's the, the direction yeah. of, of this question, that maybe it's that that perceived shift in the balance between God's, God's love and God's judgment between the Old yeah. and the New Testament. And that's kind of what I assume. That's somewhat a common kind of caricature of what we think about the relationship between the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible and then the New Testament or the apostolic writings. So let me address that as a way to get back to the Trinity question that's related to it. Mm. So if we take a look at, say, Genesis 1 through 4, I'm going to include 4 in that. It's important for this. We already see that the God of judgment like may not be who we think he is, right? So like in Genesis 3, we have this story where humanity rebels against God. And in his righteous judgment, he casts them out of the garden. And then the natural result of their rebellion against him is death and the punishment of death, right? So at that point, if we're like, oh, yeah, judgmental God, man, he kicked him out of the garden and that was it. We kind of expect that if God really is that judging God who just punishes sin and there's nothing else, well, like, what do we think is going to happen in Genesis 4 after he (laughs) casts them out, 
right? Mm. But you turn the page in Genesis 4 and you find that God's like, I'm going to kick you out of the garden and I'm going to come with you. So like, Mm. and then in Genesis 4, he's there. He is there with them in the exile. Mm. He's there with them out of the garden in the wilderness. Mm. So he's not the God who cast them out and left them alone. He's the God who cast them out and came with them into the, into the wilderness, into mm. the area outside of the garden. Interesting. And that then sets up this trajectory of the way we read the rest of the Old Testament. He is with his people. When they go into exile, he goes with them. When they're sojourning in the wilderness, he is with them, mm. present in his grace. And that's the God of the New Testament, too. And yeah. then we have like the the pinnacle of this withness of God is that he becomes with us and that he becomes what we are. And John, it says that he tabernacles, he tents, he dwells among us when the son becomes a human. Mm. And so there's a incredible continuity uh, between the New and Old Testament in, in that sense. So there, there's one God, and that God has always been gracious, and he's always been with and for his people. And that God, so if we take, that's Genesis 3 and 4. If we go back to Genesis 1, that God is the God who created And in the very beginning of the creation narrative, we see that there's some plurality in this God, this God who creates, this God who goes with us. In that, we have, uh, in the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth. Like, that's kind of a a trite phrase that we all have. Many of us who grew up in Christian circles have that kind of living in the back of our minds. And then, like, uh, in verse 3, we have this weird, like, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Uh, well, what is happening there? So there's something occurring in Genesis 1 where we have a God who's created and then a spirit of God who is present hovering over the waters. So immediately in the text, we're like, oh, I feel like there's some plurality in this God who's creating. And then following that, this God speaks. And when mm-hmm. he speaks by means of his word, he creates. Eventually, John will teach us that that word is significant in the plurality of God as well. But we have the spirit of God present in Genesis 1. We have a God who's speaking. And through the speaking of his word, he's creating. So from the very beginning of the text of the story and the very beginning of everything, creation, the world, this God is plural. Mm -hmm. That's not a surprise attack later. He's plural at the beginning. Yeah. Do you think this isn't my friend's question, but just to following following up on that, when God famously says, let us make man in our own image. Sure. Is that gesturing towards a plurality as well? Or is that, you know, like the Queen of England would say, we are Queen Elizabeth I. I mean, obviously it depends on, there there are legitimate reasons to read it different ways. But like Mm -hmm. as a Christian... Sure, absolutely. <laughs> sure. Okay, okay. I think there's plurality there that's intentional. When God speaks inside himself, he recognizes his own plurality or triunity, we might say, like he, that he is three in one. Okay, lovely. There's way more in the Old Testament, but that's just a start. Well, so so this is then, our, then the, the second question. If God was triune from the beginning, why didn't he make that clear in the Old Testament? The Old Testament seems to emphasize that God is one, And even Jesus, my friend points out in Matthew 19, refers to God as the one who is good. One, not three, she writes in brackets. (laughs) So so why isn't it clearer in the Old Testament? Yeah, uh, well, first, uh, God is one. So uh, Christians aren't rejecting the unity of God. We're saying that the unity of God is in three persons. But in order to be a Christian, you have to actually believe both of those. It can't just be that God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but not one. And so I 
of course, of course, the Old Testament writes of him as one. Of course, the New Testament writes of him as one because he is one. <laughs> um, so for me, that, like, I'm not bothered by that. Okay. But the Old Testament also writes of him. Yeah, at this point, it's even more specific. Not just a general plurality that we might see in Genesis 1, but in other places, the Old Testament speaks of God as father and son, right? So like if, if we think of Psalm 2, and, and the author of Hebrews helps us read the Bible this way, but we think of Psalm 2, I'm your father and today I have begotten you. And then and the question that the author of Hebrews asks is, well, like, who did he beget? Like, are mm. you telling me that David was begotten of God? No, 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 no. David's begotten of Jesse. David has a daddy and his daddy is Jesse. And so what's happening in Psalm 2? There is someone who's the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, whose daddy isn't Jesse. He has a father who's begotten of God. So like even in the Psalms, then the son of David theme of the Psalms becomes associated not with David, whose father is Jesse, but with this greater David, whose father is God. And that was present all along. So it's not a sneak attack when later we're like, ah, yes, the Davidic king is the son of God. Of course he is. That's what the Bible (laughs) said it would be. I love that. Um, So so then just a a little follow up there, because my friend's next question is, given that the Trinity is so central to Christianity, why is it not more clearly articulated in the New Testament? Yeah, I I love that question because it's the right question. And, And truthfully, I bet Christians would ask the same one. Like, There are Christians who are asking, people keep telling me that the Trinity is a big deal, Mm. but I don't know why. And Mm. so Christians are like, I know that if I say the wrong thing about the Trinity, I'm a heretic, (laughs) right? but I don't actually know what I'm supposed to say or why it matters. And so we're kind of like, Christians are asking a very similar question of if it's really that big of a deal, like people say it is, why does the Bible not just say, this is what it means? Well, It kind of does. The question itself reframes the story in a way that the Bible didn't intend us to. Hmm. Because the Bible is the revelation of God in his gospel. So that our desire to understand God as triune isn't separate from his revelation of himself in the gospel. It's through the gospel that we see this God as triune. And, and, And so like, we'll... Yeah, I can say this lots of different ways, but I'll kind of zone in. In that the gospel requires that there is God who sends God to die and rise, and that we're indwelt by God so that we're united to him and receive the life and love of the Father. So let's take those God words out and put in the Mm -hmm. persons of the Trinity. The gospel Mm -hmm. requires that there's a father who sent his son to become human for us. And that that son lived a life we could never live, that he died the death that we deserve, that he is resurrected and now seated again at the right hand of the father. And that the Holy Spirit indwells you, uniting you to the son to receive then the life and love of the father. The gospel is triune in shape necessarily. Mm -hmm. There is Mm -hmm. no gospel if it's not this God. We have no story to tell. So there's a sense in which it's hidden in the New Testament in that there's not like a, let me explain the Trinity now. However, the gospel of the New Testament is the gospel of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And at that point, it's crystal clear. We just have to see the gospel as that revelation. Like this is what, it's this God that's revealed. And not just revealed in information, is this God in whom we have life. Like how, how are, I do this with my students all the time in class. 
how are you saved? How did you get eternal life? Where did that come from? Well, the eternal life that you have is in the son. In him is life. Where did he get life? Because the father has been giving life and love to the son forever. Before Mm. the foundations Mm. of the world, the father loved the son. How does the father love you? Because you're in his son. The love with which the father has for the son he has on you is what John says in John 17. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I love that. I love that. Uh, going back to to the next question, which is a again a really understandable question, especially for somebody from from a Jewish background. I think you know somebody who has frequently res- recited the Shema. You know, here is well, the Lord your God, the oh, Lord yeah. is one. So her question is, how do we know there are just in inverted commas three parts to God? If He's going to have multiple parts, how do we know there are three, not two, not four, or some other number? I'm going to do two different ways to think about this question. The short answer is because of the gospel, right? So like, Mm -hmm. who is the God of the gospel? The God of the gospel is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when he reveals himself in the gospel, he reveals himself as he is. So that if there's some other person in God that's hiding in the background, when he reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's being dishonest. Mm -hmm. He's hiding something from us. But when he reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's being honest for who he is. And for what it's worth in the New Testament, that's all phrased in Old Testament framework, right? Like the clearest point in the text where we see the the holy name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is when it's referred to as the name. Well, the name in the Old Testament is God's revelation to Moses that I am. Yahweh, the tetragrammaton is the fancy nerdy word for this. Hmm. But the divine name in the New Testament says this God, the God who is the God of Moses, this God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if there's, if he's more than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's being dishonest when he says that of himself. And God could never be dishonest. God is Mm. never a liar. Mm. And then the other piece that I would say then is that God doesn't have parts. So, and this is a, like a common, this is a normal way to ask the question, but he doesn't have parts. It's not that God's like a pie. And so we've split him into three thirds. And so we have like, here's the Holy Spirit part of the pie. And here's the father part of the pie. And here's the son part of the pie. But each of them is God in, in total. Each of them is all that it means to be God is true of the Spirit. All that it means to be God is true of the Son. All that it means to be God is true of the Father. And then the only thing that divides them is their relations, which I don't know. Do you want to do that now? Mm. Do you want to keep talking or do you want to... So actually the next question I think will press in further in that direction. So, so my friend asks, how can all three parts be fully God and yeah. yet not all of God's fullness? And, and you've already answered that question to, to some extent, but I think... You know, people could be legitimately confused at this point. Well, okay, so so if the Father, the Son, the Spirit are all God in all God's fullness, then what is the differentiation? Like how, yeah. how it, it, and and there's an extent to which, and as as I've talked with this friend uh, at multiple points, I've had to say to her, would would you expect the Creator God of the, all the universe to be a being who you and I could actually you know understand quite easily? <laughs> like you know, most probably not. So, so there are going to be points we get to of saying, sure. you know what, we can say this and we, we're not going to fully grasp it. But, um, but yeah, I'd love for you to just say more about how, yeah, how can we understand Father, Son, and Spirit are all God's fullness each and yet they're yeah. not parts. Go for it. Yeah, no, I love this question. And like I said, I mean, this is the kind of beauty of 
uh, beauty's probably not the right word, uh, but the reality of our context is, man, I get these exact questions for both Christians and non-Christians alike, right? So like, mm. these are pressing questions for many of us, mm. but a lot of Christians are afraid to ask it because they're like, am I allowed to say that I don't know what it means that God is Trinity or that I'm like, does mm. this really work? Are we bad at math? You know, like, <laughs> but we can, we can go pretty far in the discussion based from the biblical text on how the persons of the Trinity are differentiated. So like what makes the father distinct from the son and the son distinct from the spirit. So let me, I'm going to do it two directions. I'm going to tear down some ways of thinking, then I'm going to build up a way of thinking. So Mm -hmm. we'll do the tear down part first. So when we say the technical term that Christians use is persons, right? That there are three persons in the Trinity, but that word is real tricky because it's a word that exists in the way that we talk with one another. Like I'm a person and you're a person. And so I'm different from you because we're different people. And if we're not careful, we'll take our idea of what makes me as a human person, Christy, different from you as a human person, Rebecca, and just map that onto the Trinity and be like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that's what it means. <laughs> but God is far too holy for that. And so when we start thinking about what makes the Father, Son, and Holy spirit distinct from one another, we have to allow our minds to be made sanctified. We have to allow our minds to be holy and think in holy ways that are appropriate to a holy God, which means we have to reframe the way we define some terms, including person, right? So let's do person. What differentiates human person? So what makes me me and not you? Well, bodies, we have separate bodies. You and I are in separate states right now. We are like thousands of miles apart. And so we are differentiated in our bodies. That's an easy one because people are like, of course, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit don't have the same body. They're like spirit. So, okay. So that one we're cool with. But the other things that differentiate us, you and I have separate minds, right? So Mm -hmm. you can't think what I'm thinking. Praise the Lord. And I can't (laughs) think what you're thinking. That would be weird and uncomfortable as well. Like I'm the only one who can hear my internal dialogue. I'm the only one who knows what's happening inside my mind. No one else has access to that but me because it's what makes me me is the Mm. ability to do that. But that is not what makes the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit distinct from one another. Mm. There is one divine mind. That's a part of their unity, not their diversity. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have one mind, the mind of God. And then the other piece that makes me different from you is that I have a separate will. In other words, you can't make me do anything that I don't want to do. (laughs) Uh, you can try to coerce me, right? You can put a gun to my head and be like, do this. But even then I have a choice. I can choose to do what you want to do or take the consequences. And you can't make me act in any way. I don't want to act. I have my own choice to will to act. And sometimes we think, oh, that's what makes the father, son, and Holy spirit different from each other. They must have different willing acts. The son can do what he wants and the father does what he wants. No, father, son, and Holy spirit have one will. This is what they have in common. That's a part of their (laughs) unity not their diversity. God is one. And God's willing act when he chooses to act, he acts as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So will and mind are both proper to God in himself, right? So whatever it means that they're distinct, it ain't that. So we're going to throw that out and we're going to remember Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have one mind and they have one will. So what makes them distinct from one another? Well, their names help us with this. The Father, we're going to have to use some language in English that sounds kind of archaic, but just hang with me. I don't know another way to do it. <laughs> it just does. Uh, like when I was a little girl, I had to memorize John 3.16 in the KJV. Uh, and John 3.16 in the King James Version of the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes him might not perish but have eternal life. Only begotten son. So the word begotten sounds archaic to our minds, but it's really just the word that the Bible uses to describe the relationship between fathers and sons. Right. So if you like we're at we're if you've read the King James version at any point, you might read those like genealogies that you're like Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob. It's that word. It's just the word that's used for the relationship between fathers and sons. And it means that the father has given life to the son. Right. How does Abraham bring Isaac into the world by giving him life of himself? And so when we think of the father and son eternally, then the father, because he's father, has been giving life to his son for all eternity. That's what it means that he's father. And then the son is son, having received life from the father for all eternity. It's the relationship that differentiates them. The relationship of having giving life and receiving life as father and son. And then the spirit, and this one's the hardest because the Bible doesn't talk about it quite as directly. The spirit is the communion of their love. So if you remember in Matthew 3 is when Jesus is baptized. At Jesus's baptism, when he comes up out of the water, the father appears and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then the spirit appears as a dove moving from the father to the son. Because the spirit is the bond of their love, which is another, we have to like sanctify our minds, right? So like, if I love you, Rebecca, the bond of our love is not something other than us. It's just us. Mm-hmm. All there is, it's us. But God's not like that. The bond of his love is another triune person. Um, and that person is the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And then let me tie, let me tie one piece back around. Cause at this point, my students are always like swimming a little bit and they're like, Ooh, yeah. it's really technical. <laughs> and I have no idea what we're talking about. So let's go back to the gospel that we already knew. So remember the gospel is that this father gave his son so that you might have life in the son is life because the father's been giving the son life for all eternity. How do you get life? You get the sun. <laughs> like our eternal life is because we're in the sun so that we receive mm. the begettingness from the father. We receive the eternal life that the father has been giving the son forever. So we have to keep that gospel frame in mind or we get lost. But it's really yeah. like the Trinity really is all about the gospel. I love that. Uh, nice segue as well into our next question, which again, you've answered so some of it, but I think it presses in, in helpful ways. So my friend asked, what exactly does it mean for Jesus to be the son of God? I thought we were all sons and daughters of God. What does Jesus' special son status imply? And how is it different from being a demigod? And I think so, mm-hmm. so, so maybe, um, you know, one of the ways we can take this is, is what you've been talking about is a relationship that existed from all eternity. Yeah, man. And yet 2000 years and change ago, the son became a human person, right. Jesus, in a way that, right. that the son wasn't previously. So help us understand you know, how is this different from Jesus being a demigod? What does it mean? What, what is his special status as the son of God differentiated from us? Yeah, he's not a creation. And so this is really important. If you ever, if anyone has ever heard like the Nicene Creed or you grew up in a church tradition where you had to like recite the Nicene Creed, the language that the Nicene Creed uses is that he's begotten, not made. Mm. In other words, he's been given life from the father. He's not created by the father. There's never a point that the father thinks, you know, I think I'm gonna make a son which makes him different than human fathers. Human fathers, when they beget children, there's a willing choice. They choose to do something that then conceives a child. But like the the eternal father is not like that. He just has always been father because he's eternally father. 
That's what it means for him to be father is that he's always fathered the son. Um, he's never been anything else than that. So it's not by willing choice. The father doesn't choose to create the son, which is different than literally everything else. So us, there, God chooses to create the world. He chooses to create human being. There's no choice involved. And then the other, you know, this is a, a classic heresy is a part of this. And so there's lots of early church sources about how to read the Bible about this. And one of the points that some of those early Christians make when they're addressing this question in their own context, because people are asking the question, but like, uh, what does it mean that he's the son? Does that make him a creation? The point that they make is, well, the Bible says that all things are made through the son. Through him, all things are made. So he can't have been made through himself. Uh, he's the eternal son making him God. And then all of creation is made then through this son. And so I'm distinct from him because I'm a creation and he's not. Now, the, the other question you asked then is, well, how do we think about when that son becomes human? Like when he's born of the Virgin Mary, What's happening there? Like, does he become the son when he's born of the Virgin Mary? No, no, no. He was always the son. And that son takes on human flesh and becomes the son of Mary, not the son of God. He was always the son of God. When the son of God becomes the son of Mary, uh, he becomes mm. who we are as human. So he doesn't change in his nature when he does that. He doesn't become son when he becomes a human. He's always been son. He becomes a human for us. Uh, it wasn't because he needed it. We needed it. We needed him to bring us back to life because we were dead. Yeah, And so yeah. he becomes what we are, that we might become what he is and have life in yeah. him. And is it fair to say then that, that when uh, Jesus was, was born or when he was conceived, you know, when he, he came into this world, that he was as much created through the son as you and I are? Like as, yes. in, as in, in, in to, according to his human nature. Oh, that's a great point. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and this is like, I, I taught this yesterday in class. Uh, and then I like drill it into my students' heads. Everything that it means to be human, Jesus is. Everything that it means to be human, Jesus is. And so if you and I are created by means of the Son, and He becomes human like we are, He too is created by means of Himself, which is mm -hmm. weird, and we just got to mm -hmm. lean into it because mm -hmm. it's true. <laughs> Um, because he's human, just like us. This is a great segue again into our next question. I'm going to get sick <laughs> of saying that. So, so our next question, and I'm just going to read it as, it as it is, is if Jesus is fully God, then he's perfect. If he's fully human, then he's sinful. By definition, someone who's sinful can't be perfect. How then can Jesus and God be one and the same? Yeah. Okay. So this is a point that there's diversity. To this point, I've been saying things that like all Christians kind of have to think. Like if you're going to be a Christian, you have to think this. This is a point that Christians actually disagree a little bit. So let me say the point that we all agree on. And then I'll explain a couple of different views that Christians give to answer this question. So what we all agree is that to be human isn't actually to be sinful in that Adam is human before he sins. It, it, it didn't make him human when he sinned. Hmm. He was human and then he sinned. And then the same we can say now, like Jesus right now in this very moment in 2023 is human and yet without sin. In the new creation, when Jesus returns and you and I are raised to life bodily, I will be human and without sin. So humanity and sinfulness is like they're tied together for a stage in time, but it is not the essence of what it means to be human, to be a sinner. I will be risen to new life finally and bodily as a real human being 
and yet without sin. And that's the hope of the gospel. Do you know what? That's actually, that is su- that's a perfect answer to the question. So I think I'm going to ask you the next one and not let you say no, the things that Christians perfect. disagree about. Because actually, I think, I think we're yeah. there. I think we're there. So, so then my friend asks, and she has a little anecdote that, that goes with it. She says, as a non-Christian, my naive misconception of the Father, Son, and, and the Holy Spirit is as follows. The Father is sort of regular God, the God who created the world, gave us moral laws, and cares for us at least to some extent. As she and I have often debated this. I'm like, I don't believe in a God who only loves you a little bit. I only believe in, I believe in a God who loves you very much indeed to the, to the point of sending a son for you. But like, let's set that aside for a second. So so if the father is regular God, the God who created the world, gave us moral laws, cares for us at least to some extent. The son is the Jesus of the gospels, but she said, I'm not quite sure who or what the Holy Spirit is. And then she says, funny fact, as a kid, I always heard that the Holy Spirit was referred to as the Holy Ghost because my mom grew up Catholic. As a kid, I wondered if this ghost was actually part of God. So I wondered if I should be afraid of the ghost because Halloween ghosts are scary or if I should revere the ghost because it was supposed to be holy. She said, I was happy to learn that my evangelical friends called it the Holy Spirit instead, which would have resolved my emotional confusion as a kid. So can you say more about who the Holy Spirit is? Yeah, let me back up and deal with the presupposition, the assumption at the beginning of that statement, and then we'll get to the spirit through that. So let's go to the idea of the relationship between father and son first. Father is regular God, and then son is the God of the Gospels. Well, the really subversive thing of the Bible is that God is all of those things, right? And and God Mm -hmm. is always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we think of the God of the Old Testament, let's say the God who creates, Uh, The God who creates is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is what I started saying earlier, right? The God of Genesis 1 is the God who creates, who speaks the word, who is the Son, by means of His Spirit, who's hovering over the waters. So from the very beginning, the God of the Old Testament is this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He always acts as who He is. So every time God acts, He's always acting from the Father, through the Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Like if you follow water through Genesis 1, all life comes up out of that water. And so the tie between spirit and water in Genesis 1-3 leads to the rest where you're like, oh, the spirit is the one who gives life. It's through the means of the spirit that God is bringing life to the world. And then his breath, he breathes the breath, the living breath of life into Adam in Genesis 2. Uh, and, and breath is spirit as well. And so God is always acting as who he is. There's some pretty um, phenomenal ways that that changes the way that Christians think about the gospel too. We think about what's happening at the cross, that this is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit acting together in both Mm. love and wrath. Um, It's not an angry dad who's throwing punishment on his son and the son's acting in love. It is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit giving wrath and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit acting in love. There's no angry dad in the gospel. He's not going to come get you. Um, there's no God behind the back of Jesus. It's always the love that we see in Jesus is the love of the Father as well. But I digress. Um, but the Spirit then. So the Spirit, like we said, is the bond of love. The best way to understand him is the role that he plays in the gospel, right? So that the Father sends the Son. The Son is the one who accomplishes the work of salvation. He's the one who lives, dies, and comes back to life. And then the Spirit is the one who applies that to us. So like, when do people become Christians in the Bible? Is it at Luke 24 when Jesus is raised to new life? 
No, it's in Acts 2 when the Spirit comes. Uh, So when the Spirit comes, what does he do? He indwells Christians and gives us the life that Jesus has so that Jesus's perfection becomes our perfection. His death becomes our death and his life becomes our life. And that's probably the easiest way to think of the Spirit is he's the one who indwells us so that we can receive the life and love of the Father and the Son. Mm. There's Mm. more that we can say But if you don't have anything, let's just do that and let that be. Like the Spirit's the one who acts on you to bring life. I'm going to sneak in one last question, which is not from my friend specifically, but is a question that I've often heard actually from um, folks who who may be skeptical of the Christian faith. We've been talking a lot about God as Father, God as Son. How do we know we're not just sort of projecting our human Mm. understandings and relationships onto God? So, So how do we know we have not just made God in our own image? It's sort of mighty suspicious that God would have revealed himself as, as father and son, given, you know, not only that, that we're human, but that we, you know, you could position the question this way, like, we have arisen out of a patriarchal society where all people cared sure. about was fathers and sons. So how do we know we're not just projecting onto God? And how does this not just, how, how does the, the fatherness and sonness of the father and the son not just make men fundamentally more important than women in a Christian understanding? Two, those are two slightly different questions. So let's start with the father-son, and then we'll, we'll talk about what that means for the way we think about men and women in society. So I don't think we're projecting, because even in this conversation, I've had to be like, so when I say he's father, he's not father like your father's a father, because your father became a father at a point in time. Your father was not always father. Your father became a father when he fathered a son. But like, that's not true of this father. He's a different kind of father. And so I have to like sanctify my mind in Mm. order for like the God concept of father to be true. I can't just map onto that my understanding of human fathers because then I make him human and and I'm literally a heretic. And so in order to do it rightly, we have to cleanse our minds to think of him in his holiness. Same with son, right? The son, son and human sons, like your husband, for example, is a son who became a father. But like this son can never become father. He is only son and the son is only father. And there's no capacity in them to become different relations. And that father is never son. So so we have to like clear clear our minds out to get it right, which means it's kind of weird, which is what we want. Like you want it to be kind of (laughs) weird because it's not just human and it is kind of weird. Because it's not human. So I don't think we're mapping on because there's no world that I create that. The concept of a father who's eternally father and a son who's eternally son. I'm not going to make that up because it's weird. And then what does that mean then for women in society? So one, it's not about gender. So when we say father and son, it's not about gender. That's not what's happening here. It's about the relationship of giving life and then receiving life, which is the fathering act, not the mothering act. And so the the analogy is important that we keep it as father because the father is the one who's giving life, not receiving life. Mothers receive, fathers give. So I don't, we can't have a mother God. It must be a father God. At the same time, there's no gospel if there's not a mother, right? So Mary is very important in the gospel And there is no gospel if Jesus doesn't have a mother who is human. And at that point, in Mary, women have phenomenal significance in the gospel itself. Because Jesus had to be born of a woman in order to be human like you and I are. Remember, everything it means to be human, Jesus is, including conception and birth. 
And so he is born of a woman and he takes his humanity from Mary. How does Jesus become a human? Well, he, he has Mary's humanity. That's why the, the Mary's the one who's mentioned in the genealogy is because she's the humanity that he has, the one that's the son of Abraham and the son of David. He gets it from Mary. Mary's the one who's that kind of human. So in Mary, then, women have a phenomenally important position in order for the gospel to be true, because Mary is the, and this is why she's the most blessed among women, because she's the one who gives the humanity to the Savior. And so I don't want to discount that. Um, women are involved in that. And then the the most final piece then is that in Christ, there's neither male nor female. Both men and women are invited to receive the life and love of the Father and the Son. You want him to be son so that you can be brought to life as a man or a woman. It doesn't matter. Um, this gospel is for all people. Uh, it, it's not gender exclusive. And that's why the terms, like even when the Bible uses the term sonship, it's not like because sons are better than daughters. It's because it's the like the eternal son sonship. It's the him receiving life from the father. And if you're a woman, you want that too. I want that too. I'm a woman and I want that. I want the sonship of the son so that I can receive the life and love of the father. I'm onto that. Yeah, so I, I wonder if it would be fair to say as we even think about, yeah, I think people often get get caught up with like, oh, we're just projecting onto God our, our human reality. We sort of forget that actually God made it, made our human reality in the first place. And, and sure. one of the things that that he has done through creating humans in the ways that he he has has given us some sort of vocabulary, some sort of way of of, of getting a glimpse and an insight into into who he is and 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 what he is like. Thank you so much, Christy, for answering those those questions, um, giving all of us, whether we identify as Christians or not, a, a richer, clearer, more gospel centered, I think, understanding of the Trinity. Those of you who are, are tuning in, thanks for joining us for this conversation. You can follow uh, Confronting Christianity podcast on Twitter and Instagram. You can leave a, a review on iTunes and you can mention if there's a question you'd like us to explore in future episodes. Please join me next week when I'll be interviewing an amazing friend of mine who did her PhD on the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. I'll be asking her hard questions about how we can understand the Old Testament today. Until then, 